0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language.
2: So that happened. This week, we have got interviews galore. First up, Adam McKay, the man who brought you all your favorite Will Ferrell movies, is back to take up the challenge of telling the story of *The Big Short*, Michael Lewis's acclaimed story of the traders who bet against the banks before the economy collapsed and made millions. He joins us to talk about this weird post-crash world we live in and how he got this crazy story told. Next up, award-winning author and Atlantic reporter/slash essayist ta Coates is on hand to offer his perspective on reparations, reconstruction, and the Democratic primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Finally, for the first time in forever, Florida Representative and Democratic National Committee Chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz has drawn an opponent in her Democratic primary. That challenger, former Paul Songhus aide and law professor Tim Canova, Who joins us to make his case for why he's ready to take up the challenges he feels his opponent has abandoned? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. We will also have a preview of the upcoming Iowa caucuses and a full recap on the most recent GOP debate. But here's what happened first. Hello, America. Welcome back to So That Happened, a Huffington Post podcast about junk that happened in politics. I'm Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and I'm joined today, at the moment, we have lots for you today, but at the moment, we're joined by Lauren Weber. Thanks for having us. And, of course, you know, you don't, yeah, I'm very grateful to have you here. Thank you for being here. Um, And Arthur Delaney.
3: We're so glad to be here.
2: So, Uh, This week, the last Republican debate before the Iowa caucus. We're going to talk about the debate set up Iowa for both the Republicans and Democrats. But first of all, the Thursday night debate. Let's talk about the fact that uh, the big dog, Donald Trump, was not there. His uh, a huge
3: shadow over the whole affair. And they even started it by asking... The candidates, don't you miss Donald Trump? Yeah, they did. They all
4: had to have a pre-planned joke about him, which was real interesting to watch. Right. Really painful. It was so painful. Humor is just not these people's strong suit. I'm very glad that, like, Ted Cruz got the big
2: one out of the way and everyone didn't necessarily feel compelled to mention Donald Trump. (laughs) Thank God.
4: Uh, I mean, Jeb did, but, you know.
2: But, yeah, this was kind of a surreal experience because... In the, We've all talked about what's it like in the parallel universe where Donald Trump isn't a candidate for president. And I guess maybe we got a taste of it tonight. I felt like maybe in that parallel universe, the establishment candidates are faring better. But Ted Cruz occupied the center of the stage tonight and occupied the center of the debate and got the better of some exchanges.
3: I thought Ted Cruz did well. He's shown he was the most outspoken person and uh, and Ben Carson is now the weirdest without Donald Trump up there.
4: I, you know, I disagree a little bit. I thought without Donald Trump up there, Ted Cruz came off as more of the jerk that we all know him to be because he just looks more jerky without Donald Trump to out. I'll be there. You know?
2: Yeah. Chris Wallace asked him a question about the, the fact that he's garnered a lot of antipathy among his colleagues. He even mentioned the fact that on two occasions, when Ted Cruz has been in the Senate asking for someone in the body to second one of his motions, Republicans just said, nah, not helping you out, pal. <laughs> and that's that's pretty harsh. It's real harsh. But I thought Ted Cruz, like, turned that question kind of back in on itself in the right way, saying that, you know, I'm not going to be the establishment candidate. I love my volunteers. I got plenty of endorsements. Lots of people in Iowa like me, blah, blah, blah.
4: No, he definitely did. But I thought that Marco Rubio got the butter of him a couple times. I mean, I think it was an even really? sparring. I do. I think that he showed him up a little bit. But maybe I'm just defaulting to the younger, nicer appearing. Well, kid. Ted
3: Cruz did not say... What he did last time, he was asked, you know, Ted Cruz, you're really weird and everyone hates you. Why is that? Previous debate, he said, well, I may not be the one but I want to have a beer with, but I'll give you a ride home. <laughs> Which
4: was so creepy.
3: <laughs> so
2: he did better. He didn't say that.
4: Yeah, that was a I'd better thing. I'd probably just stay at
2: the bar in that situation. I'd be like, no thanks, man. Ted Cruz, I'm going <laughs> to sleep in the park. Thanks. Walk. Um, I really thought that Marco Rubio got battered tonight when they came back from the break with the immigration question and they laced into him with all the videos. No one stacked up a bunch of videos.
4: I mean, they stacked up a bunch of videos against Cruz too. I don't know. I thought they both came out looking bad in that exchange.
2: I felt like that was particularly brutal. Rubio. And I feel, I feel like Rubio just, uh, he looked, he looked beaten down, giving his answer.
3: Well, they, uh, Rubio Cruz and Jeb Bush were all in this melee. And at what point, uh, Rubio basically called Bush a flip-flopper, and Bush resorted to say, well, You too, Marco! You too, Marco! <laughs> like, well, there it is. You guys are all
2: in trouble on that. You know, uh, and that's why none of you
4: are leading in the polls. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we'll briefly touch on the undercard debate. Big winner tonight, Jim Gilmore for... Gotta love him. ...suddenly and surprisingly reminding America he exists... Right.
4: I think my favorite part was when he said, I'm really not here for Iowa. I'm here for New Hampshire at a debate that takes place (laughs) right before the
2: Iowa caucus. Uh, Pretty honest. Pretty honest. Uh, He's he's quite the 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 optimist. Uh, But I think it's fair to say that after the Iowa caucuses, there's going to be some people dropping out.
3: Oh, we've got to have some attrition.
4: Please, dear God. Who is
3: who do you think will drop out next?
4: I hope I would think Fiorina will drop out. No, Santorum. I, th- I
2: think the Huckabee? entire I think the entire undercard on the GOP side should go. I'll give Gilmore one more state.
4: I mean, he already said he's making his well, stand the, in New Hampshire. The wheels oh. are
2: already coming off Ben Carson's
3: campaign with people having left weeks ago. Yeah, amid turmoil, the wheels appear to be coming off of Ben Carson.
4: As a person.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> were like there
4: any wheels to start with? You're cl- unclear. <laughs> it's
3: unclear. Uh, but the, <laughs> appe- the appearance of wheels is
2: noticeably absent. Every single time they kicked a k- Ben Carson with a question, they kicked him some good questions and he boofed them all. It it's- was like, he wasn't <laughs> paying
4: attention. He really, it's like he woke up every time.
2: What's, what do we look for, uh, on the Republican side and the Democratic side going into the Iowa caucus? What's the, what's the thing you want people to, to be aware of as we cover that event?
4: Well, I would like everyone to be aware of the massive weather event that's apparently going to happen.
2: Always a big deal.
4: Always a big deal. I mean, because these people can't send in their ballots. They have to show up in person. Yeah,
2: there's no voting there's machine. There's no voting machine. You don't pull a lever. you got to
3: be you in the room. you got to be
4: there. You have to be there or else your vote isn't going to count. So some sort of massive snowfall that's predicted for late Monday night in the northwestern part of Iowa could have a major effect on turnout.
2: One of the things that uh, we talk about, people have talked about, is there some kind of demarung for uh for Donald Trump and the one possibility that people now Suggest maybe the only hope anyone has for defeating Donald Trump in Iowa is the idea that his support might be a mile wide, but only an inch deep, which is to say these guys come out for rallies. They enjoy the spectacle. But when it comes down to showing the stick to to do the hard work of coming out caucus during the Wheeler dealing that goes on during the politics and the tactics that go on with caucusing, they're not going to show up. They're not going to measure up to the task. Uh, any any theories there? I mean, that was it, but
3: the pollsters remain confident in Trump's lead.
4: Well, but they do. There was that story in the New York Times about how his Iowa machine is is lacking in comparison to Cruz's and that maybe these people won't actually come out to caucus.
2: And our own, our own pollster team say that he will still nevertheless need record turnout to win, despite the fact he's leading. I also... There's there's also an interesting thing happening on the Democratic side. Uh, Alex Seitzwald from MSNBC reported this week that while we take a look at how Clinton and Sanders are polling side by side, and we think, oh, here's what Iowa voters say they prefer in this race, and it's very close. The problem Sanders faces is that his support is really rigidly located in the counties that contain Iowa's big colleges, like Story County and Johnson County. Uh, It was a weird fluke of the schedule four years ago that all those kids in college were at home for winter break when the caucuses happened. That's not happening this time. So if they're not getting out and motivating around the state, uh, wherever they're allowed to motivate, uh, that support for Sanders may stick really exclusively to a few Uh, urban and college counties. The problem he has there is those counties, even if he runs up support, they're only going to contribute between some 15 to 20% of the delegates to the caucuses. Now, Sanders made a late break to get his team out into rural counties in Iowa. And God, you know, the big story today was that he apparently a team of, I can't believe I'm saying this, a team of Redditors, who support Bernie Sanders (laughs) have been dispatched as a last minute brigade to boost the sort of like door to door door knocking uh, effort to, uh, to like do Sanders outreach in Iowa. And you know, when, when it comes to like interacting with middle class and rural Iowans and listening to them and really relating (laughs) to them, Reddit, that's where I'd go. That's
4: exactly where I'd have. Sanders
2: himself has been seemingly lowering
3: expectations by saying, I need high turnout, and if i don 't get it i won 't win,
2: but he still stands pretty strong in New Hampshire. I think he too has made his beachhead in New Hampshire. I think it 's fair to say that if Trump and Clinton win in Iowa, they set the stage for a table run, and yeah. that it's really for for cruz it's important to it 's important to prevail there uh, if he wants to sort of dent. Donald Trump's uh, momentum. momentum. Well, not just his men- momentum, but the whole idea that he's a winner. I think that it really comes down to Iowa and m- perhaps Ted Cruz to, like, peel off the varnish of Donald Trump's brand and hang an L on him. Because no one's managed to hang an L on him yet. You're
4: looking for the scarlet L for Donald Trump right here?
2: Uh, yeah, I don't have much faith. Cruz can pull it off. But if it's going to happen, it's got to happen now. Well, I'll tell you what. After the Iowa caucuses, we would get to spend fourteen hundred days not talking about ethanol subsidies, and that's the thing we all win. <laughs> that,
3: that was a strange moment in the debate. Ted Cruz's like amazingly well rehearsed and honed message about ethanol subsidies.
2: Yeah, yeah. Very.
3: It was complicated, and it came down to you know I, I will tear down this. Uh, uh, I can't even recall exactly what it was, but it was so obscure. Unless you know all about ethanol policy, it, it really shows the extent to which Iowa's primary primacy
2: distorts our politics. Totally so. Totally so. All right, Lauren Weber, Thanks Arthur for Delaney, us. thank you for being here. We'll be right back. We have a great show, so stick around.
4: you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.
1: And we're back. We've got a treat this time. It's not a senator. It's not a member of the House of Representatives.
2: Everyone's going to be so disappointed (laughs) to hear this.
1: Uh, We have a Hollywood director in here, a man named Adam McKay, who has uh, just released his new film, The Big Short, which conveniently is about dorky bank stuff, which we talk about on the show all the time. Adam, thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So my first question for you about this movie is that the financial crisis happened in like 2008, which in popular media timeline is kind of like the same era as the Crusades. Why,
5: <laughs> <That's true.
6: laughs> why Why choose to make a movie about that now? Well, it's interesting. That's exactly one of the reasons I was drawn to it. I mean, I think I read the book. When did it come out? 2010. Mm-hmm. So I read the book around then. And I was already struck by the fact that the conversation seemed to have stopped that like we had Dodd-Frank, you know, some people complained, oh, it's a little watered down, but it did some stuff. You know, slowly we got a newer recovery, jobs started coming back, and then it was just like done. And after reading the book, I was like, wait a minute, these banks are still too big to fail. The ratings agencies are three times bigger than they ever were. And most of all, I just felt like your average person on the street still had no idea what had gone on to some degree, including myself. Uh, then it was also the characters were so amazing. There were such great characters at the center of it that I was really excited by that.
2: This is award season, Academy Award season. And as typical Academy Awards, after the Golden Globes quit the scene, we start, we, we remove the whole idea of comedy right. from the national conversation. And we start talking about melodrama and biopics, maucous drama. But take a stand for comedy with me. Til- <laughs> How important was it to have a comic vocabulary to make a movie like this?
6: You know, I would say the advantages I got out of the comedy background was I was very comfortable with an ensemble because all the movies I've done with Feral, even though it's Feral, we have a lot of people in the movies. And, and Will and I are big believers in let other people be funny. It doesn't always have to be the one guy being funny. So I was comfortable juggling, like, seven storylines. Like, that didn't bother me at all, and I knew how to kind of get those different tones. The other thing that was good is, even though I don't improvise as much in the big short as I do in the comedies, where we improvise a ton...
2: Uh, oh, then we get it all on the DVD. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Some
6: of my favorite scenes aren't in the movies that, that we've done in the past. The uh, the heart attack scene in Step Brothers with Rob Riggle is one of my all-time favorite scenes. <laughs> I could never get it to work in the cut. Um, look it up. It's on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, that helped a lot. I still used some improv. I used it more as an element as opposed to a main way of working. But what we got out of that were these great moments that just made the movie feel very real, like... Brad Pitt improvised the line about, "Okay, I got to go get a colonic. And then Finn (laughs) Wittrock actually cracked up. And my editor put him actually breaking in the movie. And so the improv worked really well as far as just giving it that raggedy kind of real feeling where people would talk over each other. And uh, and Ray Spall improvised this whole part about having a swollen epididymis in his testicles. (laughs) By the way, poor Danny Moses, who's the greatest guy that he's playing, does not have a swollen <laughs> epididymis. I said, fortunately, Danny, you're married, so I don't feel bad for you. You've got a beautiful wife. Um, I so, feel like probably there are fewer
2: people who know what a swollen epididymis is than a credit default swap.
6: I think that's the poll of the week. I think let's get right into that. And by the way, swollen epididymis, hell of an R&B band. <laughs> really good. I'm actually in that one, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, but that's – because there have been multiple movies that have been made about the crash, right? There's um, the the movie Margin Call came out a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But the tone of the big short – it's not it's not as, uh, you know, lighthearted, let's say, as as the other guys. But um, but it's, it's a much less somber film than than Margin Call is. I mean, how did you was that something that just arose in, in, in the nature
5: of
6: the filmmaking? or Was that a conscious decision you made as a director? I, I think that came out of the book to some degree. I felt like the book was like a page turner. I was so excited by it. And I really think there's like an energy to knowing, to learning stuff that like not only are you invested in these characters because they're looking for the truth. So right away, you're on their side. And this is before you know they're going to get paid from the bailout. So you're with them. They're the heroes. Then I'm learning about how all of this works. So I read the whole book in one night, and I felt like it had this kind of frenetic, funny, exciting, look-behind-the-curtain kind of energy. Um, And, you know, because it's real life, it doesn't really adhere to a genre. We always knew it was going to end as a tragedy. I mean, that's obviously how it has to end. But we talked about how, like, Oedipus in the beginning is really excited about his ideas of, like, sleeping with his mother and, you know, doing all this <laughs> stuff. He's like, these are great ideas. I'm going to do these. And then later is like, oh, no. And so the front half of the movie is really the part where they're excited. You know, they're gaming the casino. They're beating the banks. And these characters are funny. And there were funny moments and there were depressing moments. Um so I've never really pegged it to a certain genre. It's, some people are calling it a comedy. Someone called it like a tromedy, like a tragic comedy. Um, but it's just kind of real life. It's how it went. I mean, we were having a blast before the collapse. All of America was having a giant party. And we tried to get that in the movie with like ludicrous videos and snippets of different things and kind of get the sense of what America was thinking.
2: I feel like Michael Lewis, everything he writes, really at bottom is like a caper. I think that's true. Yeah, it's all little Ocean's Eleven, no matter what he's talking well, about. Well,
6: it's usually about some idea that's really obscure that none of us realize is about to change everything. I mean, is there a more boring subject in the world than runs per dollar in baseball? I can't, I literally, I can't, I would rather talk about Q-tips for six hours. I mean, apparently you'd rather talk about credit default swaps and CDO (laughs) Squared. Easily. But yet I watched Moneyball, I was completely engaged. I loved the movie because it was about this weird little idea that changes everything. And I would say the blind side, the same thing, like, the passing game gets popular, so the left tackle becomes more valuable, which leads this kid to having this bizarre journey. Like, who cares? We're talking about an offensive tackle, and there's a whole movie about him. Yeah. But I think his genius, I think you're totally right. I think he turns ideas into caper movies. Yeah. So what did we get right in, after the crisis and what we get wrong?
1: I mean, are there other are specific policies that you think the Big Short sort of underscores as as
6: uh, as, as
1: going wrong that, that we've dealt with appropriately afterwards?
6: Well, I think the, the biggest crime was that no one was prosecuted. I think for the most part, there was one guy put in jail, and I think that's shameful. I mean, there was clearly tons of cases of open fraud and I think that was a failure on the Department of Justice not to really go after people. And and then I think the other thing is the banks are clearly still too big to fail. I don't think we, like, did anything about their size. Uh, but I think Dodd-Frank had some good stuff in it. I think there was, like, you know, some decent ideas in there. We'll see how much they're going to be enacted Uh, I think the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is really great. I think that was probably the best thing that came out of it. Um, But, yeah, I do. I worry about the size of the banks. I just feel like if another crisis comes, we're going to get hit again and we're going to be on the hook. And that, to me, was the big thing that we really had to deal with that we didn't deal with. Um, you know, I also think the capital requirements are too, still too low. I think, they're, what are they, 4.5% right now? Like, They should be more like 10%, 12 15% and for the actual tangible common equity. Yeah. For all yeah. of our listeners who know about the difference between Tier 1 and TCA. Uh, I, I, exactly. <laughs> By the way, I'm speaking in broad strokes. Keep in mind, I directed Step Brothers. But you, <laughs> yeah, you get where I'm coming movie. from. You get where I'm coming from. Yeah.
2: One of the things that's interesting about this particular story, and I, I want to talk about the challenge of this, is that we get these guys in this movie and they're uh, they're they they start off their their heroes right because like you said they're the ones that are tipped to the truth of something that's about to happen uh-huh. they're also a bunch of people who essentially made a fortune off of something that immiserated millions of people what is it how was it like to find that balance of maintaining the heroism and the fact that at bottom it's still a movie about guys who made money off of what was essentially a tragedy?
6: Well, number one, there's no way we're going to let you market our movie. That's number one. Fair play. <laughs> fair play. Uh, no, Please, no. I'm
2: not a brand marketer. by chance. Uh, uh, no, no, I, I'm
6: totally kidding. You're 100% right. I loved that ambiguity about it. Yeah. I love the fact that these were guys who really believed in the market. They really thought in the case of Steve Eisman, a.k.a. Mark Baum, played by Carell, that their job was to look for corrupt companies, look for you know holes and bubbles, and to do what the market does, invest against it, and that's how the market balances. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to these guys, these real guys, they really believe that that's what they were doing. They were doing the right thing. And I think that realization, and in our movie it happens right after Las Vegas, that they realize it's so much worse than they could have imagined. The corruption is on so many levels that the banks have captured so many levels of everything around them that, oh my God, we're not betting against the banks, we're betting against ourselves. And that realization is a large part of the reason I wanted to make the movie, because it sort of questions like, can there be a hero in a system this far gone? And what is a hero? And I'm really proud of the fact that in the end, you have these guys making loads of money, but we in no way feel good about it. And that's something I feel like that's been lost in our society. Is that now it's sort of like if you can make money, you're good. And the idea, yeah, that if you make money through crappy means, like it's just come out that like the Koch brothers' dad like built power plants for Hitler, like you know, (laughs) and that's about as cartoonish an example as you could ever imagine. But like that's not cool. Um, And so I love the fact that these characters in the end actually are having a crisis and are walking away kind of somber.
1: So what what politically has gone wrong that, you know, as you say, I mean, there there are good things in Dodd-Frank, but I think most people who are financial experts agree that it's a a modest step in the right direction. Exactly. Um, What politically has gone wrong in the United States where we, we can be faced with a crisis where, you know, the economy is basically destroyed? Um, And and that's the best we can do to come up with. What's wrong in the political system? I mean,
6: I keep coming back to, and it's, it's not in any way an original answer, but I keep coming back to money and politics. I just think the banks, the oil companies, the billionaires have captured our government almost totally. And I think to some degree, they've done it with the media, too. I think your mainstream media is all owned by corporations now. It's all driven by ratings. So good luck trying to do a 10-minute piece on the news about CDOs. Like, your your managing editor is going to be like, get out of here. So there was never that information that came out. And then I think that happened with the government then was able to use that as an excuse not to get into the details of it. And then you got into this weird blame game where all of a sudden you're blaming – wrong parties. And all of a sudden, my sister's a teacher and people are yelling at her saying, you know, you have to cut your salary. You're the reason that everything's messed up. And it's immigrants, even though you can look up the numbers and there's actually fewer immigrants coming into the country. It literally (laughs) makes no sense. And so, you know, you see this traditionally throughout history, that there's a financial crisis, people don't understand it. And you end up scapegoating like bizarre groups of people. Like I kept joking that if I I had a billion dollars I bet you I could get a campaign against witches going on in our country. I really think I could. And I would start very slowly and realistically. I would send experts out to talk about dark magic. And there is some of it and Wicca. And then I would start cranking it up. And I guarantee you by the end, I could have a protest with 20,000 people against witches.
2: That is probably true. You know, it's, you burn, you smoke in bed and burn your house down. Most people are like, no, I'm not going to do that again. But, yeah, if a bunch of people bring you money and say, keep smoking in bed, <laughs> I'll probably keep smoking in bed.
6: I'm going to smoke in bed. <laughs> yeah. And if I paid you a million dollars a year to, like, during your job, just occasionally talk about witches, you're going to go, oh, come on. It's so ridiculous. I'll mention witches occasionally, you know.
2: <laughs> you probably have encountered people maybe in the run-up to this who have said, oh, well, you know, what happened so complicated, you just couldn't possibly understand it <laughs> you better just let the experts tend to it the experts being the people who fucked it all up in the first place exactly race. so are you, getting that information out there is this is this something that's going is it driving you now going to keep driving you going going forward
6: you know it's an interesting thing we talked about that and that was one of the reasons we really went into the details in the movie we felt like there's been a lot of great wall street movies but they just generally say something bad happened. Yeah. And you kind of have to trust them. And <laughs> right. we, we really wanted to go after the jargon because I think the jargon is what makes people feel stupid or like they don't have a right to talk about this. And the second you kind of, you know, we wanted to re-democratize the information about banking, like we're allowed to talk about this. Uh, my co-writer, Charles Randolph, made a great point. He said back during the medieval guilds, the way they would keep people out was through jargon. They would use weird code words for whatever they were doing. And it's really the oh, same. You've got to have a snuggle fertile. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What is that? Don't worry. We'll handle it. Just give <laughs> us, you know, eight pieces of copper and a lamb. Um, so, yeah. So that, that was a big part of it is that anytime people are telling you we're the experts, you don't get it. And by the way, there's value to that. I should not be tinkering with medicine in any serious way. Uh, But when it comes to banking, it's integrated into our lives. It's essential on so many levels. It's not something we can avoid. I also think that goes back to financial literacy and why don't we teach economics and finance in high school? Why isn't that like a standard class your junior year that you take, which... I don't think that's by accident. I think there's a lot of people that would not want that to happen. But
1: uh I mean it's weird. I mean I I make this point every now and then on the, on the show, but I mean there're basically two kinds of financial products if you go back to through through history. Banking is one of the earliest industries in sure. in the history of markets. There's there's lending money at interest and there's buying insurance. And if you're not doing one of those two things, then whatever you're calling it is some is one of those two things disguised with a whole bunch of complexity yes, to make it yes. more expensive or more fraudulent. <laughs> yeah, Something yeah. is going on there. Um, and, and you see this with, like, credit default swaps, right? I mean, that's supposedly a form of insurance, which then suddenly becomes just a way to, like, make bets. But But it's credit default swap. Is a weird word, right? Right. If you say that to most people. I think people actually know what credit default swaps are now, but I don't think they did in two thousand. I'm going to say eighty yeah. percent
6: of the public doesn't know to this day. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. Continue. But it's it's still more it's still better known than than it was before. There is a rap group named Credit Default Swap, so that's a good <laughs> sign, I guess. I'm actually right? in that group, so uh. <laughs>
1: you guys aren't bad.
6: You guys aren't bad. You're a little heady, but you're good.
1: But I mean, I mean, you do this in the movie, though. You have you actually like talk to the camera about about this stuff. You break down the fourth mm-hmm. wall. Um, I guess uh, was was that this is a very political film. It's, it's fundamentally political. Mm-hmm. And people talk about Hollywood liberals all the time. And on, if you're watching, you know, cable news. But I don't think of Hollywood as being a particularly like politically adventurous place. No. Um, no. How did you go about getting a movie that is so I mean, that is so aggressive, actually made, particularly when you're actually giving like lessons to people over the course of the film?
6: Well, I think the trick is this issue at its heart should not be right-wing, left-wing. This is an issue that affects everyone, and I think the studio knew that. Certainly the production company, Brad Pitt's company with D.D. Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner, very, very smart people, all knew that this should not be a partisan film. So we went out of our way... Not to say Bush just did the bailout, Obama didn't prosecute people, Clinton deregulated. We don't want to get into that. We just wanted to show the system. And I think that helped a lot. I also think because it's such a populist story, I mean, ultimately, Hollywood wants to make money. If you look at who owns the studios, it's Viacom, it's Disney, it's you know Comcast. These are big, mean corporations that only care about money. So we made the big short a month later, the Benghazi movie by Michael Bay comes out of the exact same studio, you know? <laughs> and you look at Sony, Sony has a whole faith-based part of their studio that makes Christian movies. Like, And I could go, I'm not going to name specific people that are right-wing, but there are a lot in Hollywood. The idea that Hollywood is left-wing is ridiculous because you're you're exactly right. Yes, there are enclaves of people that... Hillary or Obama can show up and raise money at their house. There's no question that happens. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you still have to go through that corporate filter. And that corporate filter only cares about money, product and IP. That's it. So I think that's why they made it. It was Michael Lewis. You had big stars. It was a populist subject. The script was never written in an overtly partisan way, although, you know. If you want to look at who takes the most money from banks, actually Dems take a lot of money from yeah. banks. So yeah, bipartisan yep, yep. phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's how it happened. If I had written the script in a way that was like, look what Bush did with the bailout, can you believe it? Like, I don't think it would have been made. I don't think it would have worked either. Have you met any
2: genuinely funny people in politics?
6: God, I had a crazy.
2: We're gonna leave. We're gonna leave uh, um, uh, Al Franken out of this. Okay. You, okay. Okay.
6: Because Al Franken is obviously yeah, funny. Yeah. Yeah. About two nights ago, we got into town and I went to a TGI Fridays with Oren Hatch. This and sounds like the best night of anyone's life. We got hammered, like blind drunk. And we go outside and Hatch is like, screw it. Let's take this guy's motorcycle. I'm like, Oren, you can't. There's snow everywhere. And by this time, Oren has his shirt. No, none of this happened. <laughs> it would have been amazing. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
2: <laughs> that would have been amazing.
6: Amazing. Amazing. That was actually my motorcycle. Or- <laughs> Orin- he was coming from a gig.
2: Oren does sing. Swollen epididimis.
6: Oren does sing. And by the way, did you guys enjoy John Ashcroft in the movie? Did like catch the, it? Letting the eagle soar We have that in there. It's played <laughs> in the movie in the big short. I'm not kidding. We actually best. play that. That's yeah.
2: <laughs> really the best. the eagle soar. The four the four senators singing senators oh my god yep well that's that's what passes for entertainment usually around here
1: yikes all right yeah, so thanks for coming down and giving yeah, us Adam. some entertainment
6: my pleasure thanks for having me you guys all right and we'll be right back
3: And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my friend Zach Carter. Hey, everybody. And our next guest I'm very excited about. He's been searing the American conscience with his book Between the World and Me and arguing the case for reparations. And this week, he's got everyone upset and agitated. Excited, maybe. And excited. People are really fussing. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, thanks so much for joining the show.
7: Thanks for having me, guys.
3: So, you've been writing about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and you've been critical of both. Let's talk about Bernie Sanders. How did he get on your radar for the story you wrote recently about why he's against reparations?
7: Well, he was asked a question um, by a reporter from Fusion, and what he was asked, i mean, the question was phrased improperly—but he was asked, was, "Is he?" Um, in favor of reparations for slavery, and, and at this point in history, very few people make the claim that reparations is just for slavery. The claim generally covers, you know, both enslavement, the era of Jim Crow, and the era of Jim Crow. So that would extend us, you know, up into conservatively, honestly, 1968 or so. Uh, my own case for reparations, for instance, was actually based on housing law from the 20th century, uh, and it wasn't so much as Sanders was against reparations that caught my ire, but it was the fact that he was against reparations because uh, it would be divisive uh, and the chances of it getting through Congress uh, would be nil. Um, I actually think, like, that argument, the way he put it, would have been more acceptable uh, from a more moderate candidate. Um, but, like, you can make that same critique, and people do make that same critique, of, of, of much of Bernie Sanders' Sanders' platform, one could argue that the chances of getting single-payer health care through Congress are nil. And I know somebody would respond and say, well, single-payer health care is much more popular than reparations. But that doesn't change the fact that the chances of getting it through Congress are nil. (laughs) Regardless of whether it's popular, it's not like we live in a direct democracy. We don't. You have to get things through Congress. And so the chances of getting single-payer health care through Congress are nil. The chances of increasing the minimum wage that Senator Sanders wants to do and getting it through Congress are, are, are nil. No nope. you know, one can make the same argument about, um, you know, a public universities. Now, see, I, I don't say that from the perspective of one who feels like, therefore, you know, Senator Sanders shouldn't be out there advocating for certain things. No, by all means, I think it's awesome. Because I think without that, people actually forget what's possible, and people begin to think of a kind of compromise and, you know, middling and in incrementalism that you have to do in a democracy as, as the ideal, which it's not.
3: Now, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, he calls himself a socialist, which is pretty out there. But a lot of his campaign is stuff that's palatable to a broader spectrum, like expanding Social Security. Like even the Donald Trump crowd loves Social Security. So one, one of his uh, explanations was that it would be divisive. What about that aspect? It, it seems oh, like...
7: I, I, I completely disagree with that. Obamacare was divisive. Which was much, much more moderate than what Senator Sanders is actually uh, pushing. Obamacare was definitely divisive. I mean, the, the notion that an actual campaign for single payer health care would not be divisive in this country—I I, just—I I, don't—I don't get that at all. How is it that the more moderate thing, when we had a Democratic majority in Congress, proved to be divisive, and, and this won't be? What, what liberals often forget when when they do this is they think that you know, and this is a, you know a game, a hustle that we try to run. We try to substitute in class politics and try to, you know, therefore, you know, pivot away from race. But see, racists in America understand that when you talk about single-payer health care, you are also talking about single-payer health care for black people. That's the history of, you know, sort of class-based solutions. And and they often oppose them on those grounds. Glenn Beck was on the radio doing Obamacare, calling Obamacare reparations. That's what he said.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's true. That's worth remembering. And we know this. I mean, you can see Paul Ryan talking about problems in the inner cities when he talks about poverty and food stamps. I mean, there's clearly a racial undercurrent to the way we talk about a lot of economic justice, I think. But, you know, at the same time, uh, I feel like some of Sanders defenders on single payer, for instance, have said, look, there it may be the case that single payer can't get through, but... As a single-payer advocate, he's gotten he, like, he made Obamacare more progressive. There are these great community health clinics that are part of it that he did. Are there, are there middling steps that someone could take on reparations if they supported it that could happen?
7: Yes, yes. I mean, he could very easily say, listen, I don't know if I support rape reparations or not. I don't support it or not. But I support H.R. 40. I support the study. There's been enough things that have happened in this country that it warrants study. He, he could say that. He yeah. could say that. I, frankly, my concern is this. I don't even know if he has people around him, or I don't even know if he knows himself um, enough about the subject to even give that sort of answer. That, that is actually what's much more concerning. That, you know, that, are there people around Senator Sanders who say, you know, you don't actually have to, you know, you, you really do have a defensible claim of saying, I just don't know enough, but I support the study of it. That, that strikes me as eminently defensive.
3: Now, Ta-Nehisi, this gets to an incredibly interesting part of your article from 2014 about the case for reparations, H.R. 40. Legislation that's been introduced in the House of Representatives every session by John Conyers, Democrat of Michigan, who's who's been serving in Congress a long time. And that's what it does. It, it says Congress and the president will appoint a commission to study the question of how to repay African-Americans for all that was taken from them in this country's history.
7: Wait, wait, just a, just a small correction. It actually says... To, we'll study slavery and the legacy of slavery and see if reparations are actually owed and, if so, whether they should be paid. So one doesn't even have to theoretically support reparations going into it to support H.R. 40.
3: Amazing. So, so, the, so my point is, is there not enough awareness of H.R. 40 that someone like Bernie Sanders doesn't even realize he could say, oh, yeah, we would study it? Because in Washington, opting to study a problem or appoint a commission is often a way of
1: punting. Making it making the problem go away, yeah.
3: And you and you think if this is tricky for him, yeah. Shoot, we'll punt.
7: <laughs> it, yeah, it is a way of punting. But here's the thing: the 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 the, the, the uh, problem with that argument is, in fact, the reparations that we have had in this country this reparations for Japanese Americans who, who were in turn. This is exactly the same process. That's what happened. They had a commission first. They had a study first, and then they went to actual legislation. So it's it's not. In this specific case, Senator, uh, uh, not Senator, Congressman Kanye introduced that bill because he was modeling it on a successful reparations campaign. That's the way, that's the reason why it's structured like that. You know, I ask you a question. I think people hear reparations, and I guess this is why I was disappointed, in much the same way they hear socialists. And they think, well, that's too far out. I'm not even going to give it, give my, my full mental power to give you any consideration of whether this is legitimate or not. Yeah, as somebody, you know, as a senator who, you know, I'm sure has had that done to him himself, you know, he's a socialist and people run the other way, don't even bother figuring out what the program is, don't even bother thinking about, you know, what he's actually advocating. I felt like he did the exact same thing with reparations. And that was what was so disappointing.
3: Well, do you, uh, Real quickly, do you think it's weird that H.R. 40 is on the table and just it isn't part of the conversation, even when presidential candidates are asked about? Reparations? I
7: don't think it's weird, because I strongly suspect that though very few people would, would, would admit this, deep down inside, we know what we'll find.
1: Aha. Well, let me ask you this. So in your first essay on, um, uh, on Sanders this week, you said, uh, you said that reparations is the essential uh, uh, element to, to, to racial justice. When, when you talk about reparations, what, what, do you, what do you mean by it? And then what do you mean by, by it being essential?
7: Well, it depends. In my specific case, I argued uh, 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 for a reparations case based on housing, right? And so I offered a very, very simple solution for that one. Although there are other reparations case uh, cases, I only speak to mine because if you tried to, I mean, this is why we need HR forty. If you tried to consider the entire legacy, you'd have to look at housing, you'd have to look at public health, you'd have to look at, you know, uh, 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 public schooling under under Jim Crow, and you'd have to look at so you'd have to put you'd have to look at you know the era of terrorism, you'd be all these areas, criminal justice, you'd have to put pull together to get it figured out. That's actually why we need H.R. 40. For my piece, I focused on housing, and I proposed a very, very simple idea for reparations. Uh, Housing discrimination in this country in the 20th century was imposed through the usage of redlining maps. We still have those maps. I use them for my story. Uh, We know where it took place. Uh, We have census reports. We know where people lived relative to that. So it's not very hard to find out, you know, who was discriminated against and who wasn't, what neighborhoods suffered and what neighborhoods didn't suffer. And so I argue for an infusion of resources into those particular neighborhoods, and we can have a, you know, debate about how that should be done. Should that be job programs? Should that be education? You know, should that be, you know, direct checks? And there's certain people who I definitely argue for direct checks for right off the bat. There are people like the gentleman I, I profile, Clyde Ross, you know, uh, who actually did try to get legitimate loans, was discriminated against, and was forced into this sort of shadow system of loans. We should do this. We really, really, because people are dying off, right? People are dying off. We really should do this right now. There should be a claims office for people like that. That's a doable, actionable thing. Clyde Ross was a GI, went off to the Army, was supposed to be eligible for, for the GI Bill. And like a lot of African Americans you know, who served in the Army was not, in fact, eligible for that, was not eligible for the same sort of housing program that other people uh, were eligible for. Those folks are alive right now, many of them, not all of them. Some of them are alive right now. Certainly their children are alive right now. It's very easy to document. And yet we haven't done it. Now, so if people talk to me about a lack of specifics, those are specifics. Those yeah. are actual
3: specifics. And you are you are uh well, you are basically summarizing the the criticism that I've seen. Well it's not specific. Or on the other hand, HR forty, that's too small. Right. So you've <laughs> now, now one uh common theme here is history. And and when you talk about reparations and the case for reparations, part of this is you've got to help people understand what has happened and that, we you know, we're not just talking about slavery and Jim Crow, but also what happened after. Um, and, and you wrote about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton when the question was specifically history, because she was asked about a favorite president and said, Oh, Abe Lincoln. And then, and then kind of kicked the ball in her own goal by talking about reconstruction. So t- tell us about, what went wrong there?
7: Uh, it was like this typically, you know, safe answer. And I just left it, like, actually wondering how much about Abraham Lincoln she actually, you know, understood. I'm, you know, just to be straight with you about this. Uh, because, you know, like, a lot of people are, you know, willing to give, give her the, the benefit of the doubt, you know, w- with the answer. And when I looked at it, at first I was until she went to, you know, that line about we had people in the South feeling totally discouraged. And <laughs> and, and that was, that's just straight, you know, lost cause Dunning school. You know, stuff. That sounded like something that somebody told her when she was in middle school or high school. The thing that Hillary Clinton didn't account for in her answer is all of the, the rancor and the defiance that she's talked about. Right. That defiance was evidence when they started the war and 600,000 people got there. That was the Act of Defiance Act. The defiance did not originate after Recon- Reconstruction. Defiance was the act of attempting to raise a country based on slavery. And that's what happened. And that's what got Abraham Lincoln shot in the head, by the way. The same thing that she thinks he would have restrained is what got him killed. He got killed trying to restrain it. That's what happened. That so, yes. So it's like sort of easy, you know. Answer. I mean, this is just—it's just fantasy, man. This is total, total fantasy. And there's no mention, you know, in, in, in her answer, even in the, the, the reply that she offered uh, through her spokesperson, of why Abraham Lincoln actually was killed.
1: Now, do you think do you think I feel like because that her answer is, is basically what I was sort of taught. I grew up in Virginia and it was sort of what I was taught in in middle school and I think even in a little bit of high school. But I feel like the historical consensus here has shifted a lot, at least in academia, where people people are saying, no, actually, Reconstruction was problematic because there were a lot of southern terrorists who were empowered by the Supreme Court. Um, do you think do you see any progress in that, I mean, to me, I was like, oh, things are getting better. The historical narrative seems to have shifted. I mean, wh- what does it say to you that, that in the presidential dialogue, we don't seem to have that same, that same, level, that same shift? Oh, no, does that surprise sad. you? I
7: mean, it, it's sad. I mean, Hillary Clinton is not, you know, someone who, you know, went to high school and, you know, didn't go to college or anything after that. I mean, it's, not, you know, Ivy League educated. Uh, and even if not, I, even if she wasn't an Ivy League educated, somebody, you know, for the care of the president. It, again, I, you know, I said this in the piece, it's not too much to ask that you understand your history. It's not too much to ask that you be you know, aware or cognizant of the letter that John Booth wrote in support of white supremacy where he literally said, here is why I killed Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Abraham Lincoln is your favorite president. It's not too much to ask you know, that you understand why he was killed. And it doesn't require an act of revisionism. It just requires you to go read the letter. That's it.
1: Before we go, I want to ask you a sort of philosophical question about reparations, uh, because in your in your big essay for The Atlantic uh, several months ago, you quote John Locke at the beginning. And in the 20th century, uh, you know, right-wing philosopher Robert Nozick sort of took up the mantle of Locke and made basically the same argument that, that you quote Locke on in your piece by saying, you know, if, if somebody's been wronged in the history of property, they should be, they should be compensated for it. But he also makes this sort of he sort of gives it gives away the game, I think, for the right wing in a little bit where he says, you know, look, if you can't if, if it turns out that in the history of, of economics, a lot of people have been wronged in a lot of different ways. We're never going to be able to figure out how to compensate which groups. And we know we know there are a lot of different groups that have been wrong in the history of the United States. Why? Why? Why is it that we don't do some sort of egalitarian do over? Why is a reparations case the better way to, to look at the at, at, at the philosophical problem?
7: Well, I look at it like a debt, you know, and that debt for that's for different things. I might have a debt for my water bill, I might have a debt for my light bill, I might have a debt for my phone bill. Um, the fact that you know I can't you know completely pay off all my bills does not you know then say to me I should pay nothing. You
5: know, <laughs> right. I mean that's
7: just <laughs> that's, that's not you know that 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 no one would accept that in any you know realm of real life. The government doesn't actually deal like that. But it has to you know deal with it with its own expenses. Yeah, you know, I made the case on behalf of African Americans. That does not mean that there is not a case to be made on behalf of other people at all. It's just the case that I made.
1: But here, here, here's the thing, though. To me, this actually sounds like reparations is a relatively practical policy rather than a broad Oh, yeah, just starting idea. over.
3: That would be easy.
1: <laughs> well, that would be a lot harder. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I've always thought
7: it was. I mean, you know, you make a credible claim, and then, you know, people, you know, decide that, you know, that, hey, yeah, that's a that. We can actually— Pay it off. And just really quickly to go back to the original question, not, not your original, but there's a question I asked earlier about why I thought this was essential. You know, the basic problem in the African-American community at all class levels is an absence of resources. That's just the, the basic problem. And if you study the history you know, and you realize that for some three centuries the policy of this country was to plunder those communities, it's, it's not a surprise at all that there's an absence of resources there. That's what happens when you take something from someone and the notion that we can somehow get to equality.
3: Tana nehisi Lastly, I mentioned at the top that, you know, everyone's been fussing and agitated and upset. I think the the predominant complaint about your criticism has been along the lines of, what about so-and-so? You know, you, you, you attacked Sanders, so what about Hillary Clinton? And then if you're talking about Hillary Clinton, what about the Republicans? So, uh, well, you know, without asking in a way that excuses the original target of your criticism— what about those republicans what about them so to elaborate the complaint is why attack the democrats who have a, you know a more favorable uh policy proposal for african americans when you've got the republicans who are you know all about rolling back voting rights and and other such things
7: i mean why why talk about cancer or well, why talk about influenza when cancer is in the world
3: yeah what aboutism sucks you're right I just thought I just thought I would be, since we got you.
7: I, I don't know. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm not to more man than you. I'm just saying, in general. I mean, come on.
3: Yeah, I think uh, what uh, come on man is is a good response to. Well, what about? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tana Haziko. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, we'll be right
2: back. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here and to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an inside the beltway show for beltway outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you and your feedback has been such a tremendously good positive influence on us every week. Now you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe. If you haven't, And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show, and we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. You know, one of the people we've talked about, Zach Carter, um, throughout this process, this debate process, is how dumb the DNC is being. Well, DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz is not just getting challenged by us in terms of the debate. (laughs) She's being challenged for real in her primary. She has a Democratic primary opponent, the first in maybe forever, and he's on the phone with us right now. Tim Canova is a uh, former aide to Massachusetts Senator Paul Songus, and he's law professor right now at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, running in Debbie Wasserman Schultz district as her primary opponent. Mr. Canova, welcome.
8: Thank you. Nice to be with you.
2: So just briefly, tell us what has animated your desire to challenge uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz in this primary race, because it's not a thing that uh, obviously other Democrats in that district have chosen to do.
8: Well, that's true. Uh, There's been a lot of disquiet and criticism of her uh, voting record and her campaign uh, fundraising um, activities uh, within her district. Uh, So I've been uh, increasingly, and and again, not just me, a lot of labor folks and progressive Democrats uh, looking at her record. She's been uh, raising a a ton of money from uh, big corporate interests and increasingly voting their way on uh, issues that are of great importance to the residents of Florida's 23rd Congressional District and and really all of South Florida. So she has uh, talked to talk about campaign finance reform, but she's raising money like crazy from corporations, big ones, and uh, it's reflected in her voting. So she she votes for uh, deregulating Wall Street still. Uh, She votes um, to fast-track a a bad trade agreement and – she votes for privatized prisons when she's taking a lot of money from private prisons. Uh, she's very much a drug warrior. Uh, so it's her voting record at home more than her record at the DNC that that motivated me and a lot of other grassroots folks here uh, to uh, to join this campaign.
1: So tell us a little about your your own background. You're you're a law professor. Uh, it seems like you teach some pretty nerdy stuff, but that is becoming uh, an increasingly common kind of. Um, background for, for, for new Democratic candidates? What uh, what, what is it that you teach and, and uh, you know how did you get your, your sort of academic laurels?
8: Sure. For Well, before going into uh, the academy, I was a practicing lawyer in Manhattan and I, I was a legislative aide to uh, the late Senator Paul Songis, as you mentioned. Um, for the past two decades, I've been teaching at law schools and uh, I teach mostly business law, banking law, uh, international trade law. Uh, for the past three decades, I've been uh, writing and and speaking out against uh, deregulating Wall Street, uh, all the way from the 1980s arguing against deregulating lending standards uh, and allowing uh, the subprime uh, and predatory loan markets to develop. Uh, In the 1990s, I was uh, warning about uh, watering down Glass-Steagall and uh, against the, the rise of derivatives. Ah uh, so, all of these things came to pass, and I, I should say for a lot of the years that I was uh railing against the regulation, it was not a very popular position to take even in the legal academy
1: well, you know when you were when you were working for uh, Senator Songus, it wasn't very popular in his office. I mean he was sort of one of the uh, you know one of the Democrats who really led the turn, i think away from sort of traditional um, New Deal style economics in the Democratic Party and towards uh, a lot of Republican ideas, but you were writing stuff in the uh, you know in this this Washington City paper article about the failure of Continental Illinois. A lot of people listening probably have never heard of Cotton in Illinois, but that is where the term too big to fail comes from. Um, so I, I guess I, I'm curious, what, what do you think the federal government could be doing differently um, with banks today uh, relative to, to what's, what's actually going on at the, at the regulatory apparatus with, with the way they're implementing Dodd-Frank and, and the like?
8: Sure. Well, there, there are some easy things I, I, I can mention that, both that my opponent made uh, to uh, prevent the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, from writing rules uh, uh, to regulate payday loans and uh, racial discrimination in auto loans. Uh, So those kinds of consumer protection uh, measures are are necessary. Beyond that, the federal government should be encouraging community banks, postal banking, public banking, uh, a federal infrastructure bank. We need really parallel institutions that are able to fill the vacuum that's left when Wall Street decides they're not going to invest in infrastructure, that they'd rather it be done through expensive bond markets or through privatization. Uh, at the same time, I'm all for Bernie Sanders' call to be breaking up the big banks. I think it's, it's not just uh, that this uh, concentration of uh, banking assets is damaging to the economy as it is, but it also gives them the kind of political clout that they can pull the strings in Washington and get their way all the time.
1: Now I know you said that, uh, that you feel like it, you know her voting record is is more relevant than her record at the DNC. But I mean, Wasserman Schultz has been identified as as a new Democrat uh, for as long as she's been off in office. These are people who typically vote with Democrats on uh, on social issues, but have a more conservative bent on on corporate accountability issues. Um, you know, surely you are aware that challenging the DNC chair, uh, who is a new Democrat, uh, as a, a sort of populist law professor, uh, as you are, uh, carries um, quite a bit of significance for the party nationally.
8: Well, and it should, and and I'd like to see more progressive folks around the country who would never think of running for office to start stepping up. Uh, it, unfortunately, the progressive wing of the party, uh, which really used to dominate the party from Franklin Roosevelt through John Kennedy, has mostly been taken for granted. Uh, their votes are 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 curried by the new Democrats at election time. Uh, but then uh, when it comes time to governing, they're, they're really uh, marginalized. And I think it's been very damaging, not just for the, the, the party, but for the country as a whole.
2: Uh, you mentioned that, that uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is, is a significant drug warrior, uh, which uh, obviously has led many of our government officials down blind paths into ridiculousness. Uh, she recently gave an interview with Anna Marie Cox in New York Times Magazine, where she uh She seemed to give a mixed—a real weird and, I think, sort of illiterate message on medical marijuana, where she said that she doesn't oppose the use of medical marijuana, but she doesn't want to legalize it either. It seems that she's unaware that the restrictions we place on marijuana prevent uh, researchers from— unlocking the, the potential of medical marijuana more broadly. She also uh, sort of dodged on an answer of, of why uh, there hasn't been any effort on her part to crack down on opiate pill mills in Florida. What is, what is it? How does that issue resonate in, in this district?
8: I, I think it really does resonate. Um, in 2014, statewide, we had a referendum on medical marijuana. And most people don't realize 58.5% of Florida voters voted for medical marijuana. Uh, unfortunately, you needed 60% for it to pass, and uh, Wasserman Schultz was against medical marijuana in that referendum. Uh, I, would, I would think that in her district, uh, in, in Florida's 23rd, this is the most liberal county, Broward County, in the entire state of Florida. I would think in this district, well over two-thirds of the voters were in favor of medical marijuana so she is opposed medical marijuana at the same time that she's taking lots of money from alcohol and beverage packs and uh, and private prisons the intercept wrote a very good piece on this and uh, she's uh, supporting private prisons at the same time it, it is a very misguided drug war it makes no sense to be putting people in jail or criminalizing um, the kind of activities the kind of use uh, of, of, of drugs that as far as we know, at least the last three American presidents, and according to many surveys, a majority of the American public ha- have used.
1: Now, uh, in, in Florida, I mean, there, were, there are there are deep-pocketed donors who are supportive of medical mar- marijuana. One in particular is John Morgan. Uh, have, he, he bankrolled basically the entire uh, amendment uh, process in in twenty fourteen. Is is not a very big fan of Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Have you had any conversations with him about supporting your campaign?
8: I have not actually spoken with Mr. Morgan. I'm aware of his activities. Uh, I think, uh, like many folks who support the Democratic Party, uh, he would, uh, many of them would be in a tight bind to publicly come out and support a challenge at this moment uh, to the head of the DNC. But I think there are a lot of folks who are coming our way behind the scenes quite often to give us some help. Uh, and I think that will continue. And as the campaign gathers force, I'd imagine some of them will be emboldened enough to to come out more publicly in favor of this this, this challenge.
2: You know, it's hard to uh, it's hard to talk about Debbie Wasserman Schultz without talking about her stewardship of the Democratic National Committee. And I know that's maybe not necessarily the reason that you've gotten into this race, um, but do you? Feel That she's been an adequate leader of that institution. I know you're not angling for that job in particular, but you're you're where you are, perhaps because of the way she's run the DNC. And perhaps it's possible that there are people sitting around in other districts who are looking up at entrenched Democratic representatives. They feel like they've gone off the reservation, too. They're not representing their districts. Uh, what do you tell people like that who might be in a similar situation? Because I feel like there's, there's still something there to that critique.
8: Well, I, I am trying to run on the local issues as much as possible. Yeah, sure, her voting, sure. Her voting record. Uh, my own view is that her leadership of the DNC has been a disaster. Uh, we have lost uh, the Senate. Uh, we've lost so many House seats that the Republicans have the largest majorities they've had in the House in something like half a century. Uh, and the messaging is all wrong, and it doesn't surprise me. When she's taking so much corporate money and voting their interests. Um, she's going to get the messaging wrong. Uh, so I, I think there needs to be uh, progressive challenges to incumbents around the country. Uh, uh, even in primaries, uh, I had this conversation with a, a reporter very recently, uh, how unusual it is for a Democrat to challenge a, a sitting incumbent uh, in a primary. And, you know, you take a look at the congressional district, and most of these members of Congress have safe seats for the general election. So if they're not challenged in the primaries, what does that say about our democracy? There's no contested election in the primary. There's no real contested election in the fall. They get a free pass the entire time. And, uh, of course, they're just going to keep voting the the interests of the big corporations that are funding their campaigns. The system has to be changed, and uh, I think this is probably the way... Change comes is ordinary folks have to step up.
2: All right. Well, Mr. Canova, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll, we look forward to having you back uh, on the show. Uh, good luck to you.
8: May I just say that my campaign is uh, we're not taking a penny from a corporate PAC. We're not setting up any corporate super PACs. We're trying to fund our campaign the way Bernie Sanders is through small donations. So I would urge your, your listeners to uh, go to timcanovaforcongress.com. And do whatever they can to help.
2: All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Adam McKay, director of The Big Short, Tana Hasi Coates, author of Between the World and Me, and Tim Canova, Democratic candidate for Florida's 23rd District House seat, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com that Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to sothathappened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.